Section 13 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book Two Open a Door of Utterance, Colossians, Chapter Four, Verse Three. Chapter One. One. To please me, to please your mother, Joanna, and it is not very often nowadays that I ask either you or Linnet to do anything to please me. It was Julie that spoke. Joanna, tormented by the vexation and pertinacity in her mother's voice, looked up from her drawing board and across the dark parlor. She was sitting close up to the window, eagerly using the last of the daylight for her work. But Julie stood uncertainly by the door, grasping the knob with one hand, while with the other she contrived awkwardly to hold a small tray loaded with tea-things. To the daughter by the window the mother's face in the interior was only a pale blur, but she knew its expression as surely as though she could see the distressed features, and her blood rose in irritated protest. She was working. She was trying to finish a lunette-shaped design for tomorrow's class at the School of Art. Why couldn't her mother let her alone? It was all very well coupling her name thus with Linnet's, but in practice Linnet was left unmolested and went his queer, separate way alone. And it had been the same with Shalto till he had left home a year ago. It seemed as if the boys were exempt from their mother's spiritual passion. She even did her best to forward them in the world, scraping together the money for Sholto to start fair in the colonies when he should be ready to go, and keeping unpunctual Linnet up to the mark in his attendance at Mr. Boyd's law office, where he was now apprenticed. But when she considered the unspiritual ambitions of her daughters she had never ceased to mourn, and as Georgie was away it was Joanna who chiefly suffered the strain of being yearned over. I say it again, Joanna, my child," continued Julie, and though she tried to put sternness into her tones they remained simply vexed. To please Mrs. Lovett, or Mr. Nilsson, or Feemy Pringle, or any of the new friends you have made since you came home, there is no trouble you will not take, and take gladly. But if poor mother asks you to do something for her sake it always goes against the grain. How is it? You get lots of flattery, Joanna, outside your home, but I must speak the truth to you. And this that I have said, however it may grieve us both, is the truth. Think how little it is I am asking of you, simply to give one short hour of next Friday to read and pray quietly with a few of God's dear good workers. And remember, my daughter, you will not have mother with you always. She is growing older, and her constant prayer is that she may not be spared to old age, to be a burden to herself and others." Joanna sprang to her feet. She was seething with a helpless sense of injustice. It was more than three years now since she had returned from Italy, a widow to her mother's house, and scenes of this kind were familiar enough. But all of a sudden, at this moment, she found the situation intolerable. It was intolerable that her mother should stand there pleading with her, holding the tray so ungracefully, looking in her shabby dress more like a servant than the mistress of the house. In a confused fury, but controlling her movements, she crossed the room and took the tray roughly from Julie's hands. 
"'I'm sorry, mother,' she said. "'If you want it so much, I'll go to the meeting.' But she was incapable of any accent of relenting tenderness. "'Thank you, Joe.' The mother smiled now in timid triumph. "'You really will come? You promise mother not to let anything prevent you?' "'Haven't I said I'll come?' The girl's exasperation brought violent shoots of pain to the back of her eyeballs. "'Surely,' she thought, "'mother might let it alone now she has got her way.' And before taking the tray to the pantry she added, "'But remember, it is only to please you, not to please Miss Gedge.' Julie sighed deeply as she went to light the gas and draw down the parlor blinds. But she looked happier. For after all, Joanna had promised to come on Wednesday night. And Joanna was not to know that the meeting in the tiny vestry of St. Saviour's, the low and very evangelical English church to which Julie now went, had been specially arranged for her spiritual benefit by dear Eva Gedge. If Joanna had known, she would have been angry and nothing would have made her yield. Was it perhaps a little unfair? As the mother swept the table carefully clear of crumbs and strewed them outside on the window-sill for sparrows, an expression of shame did strive for a moment with the satisfied craft in her face. But it was only for a moment. The deceit, she reminded herself, if deceit there were, was for her precious child's eternal welfare. Besides, this little gathering of one or two together, with Joanna in their midst, was dear Eva's idea. And it was dear Eva's calling to deal with young people. Why else was she at the head of Elmbank Training College for deaconesses? Joanna, in the pantry, rolled back her sleeves, turned on the hot water, and set herself the unnecessary task of washing up. The dishes might quite as well have been left for the housemaid whose day out it was but if Julie saw them, she was sure to slink in later and do them herself. It was a provoking piece of knowledge, and the daughter, as she rinsed the cups and saucers, stared tensely out between the bars of the pantry window at the familiar darkening slope of the back green. There at the top was the wall along which she had so often raced, and in the angle of the wall was a disused ash-pit, which, at eight years old, it had been her dream to turn into a little house for herself and cousin Gerald. True, she had taken no practical steps towards making it habitable, but the picture had so persisted in her mind that for many months she had not been able to pass a piece of coal in the street or a stray potato without picking it up. At once she had seen herself in her tiny house, bending over the fire and cooking the loved one's supper, while he praised her for her thrift. And there, in another corner of the wall, was the carpentry shed, which looked sad since Sholto's departure to a farm in the Lothians, where he was learning stock-breeding. Joanna wished that Sholto could have stayed at home instead of Linnet. She and Linnet depressed each other, and the sister felt a kind of horror at seeing her own faults so clearly emphasized in her brother. She was ignorant of the real current of his life, and in all but superficial ways the two had come to avoid each other, seeking help outside in different directions. Suddenly the tears started to Joanna's eyes, and her high-strung fury changed to simple dreariness. Through these childish memories, called forth by the sight of the black-green, and these thoughts of the nearer past, she had completed a circle of emotion. Once more she was confronted by her immediate trouble, 
the trouble concerning her mother. And for a moment she tasted despair. Almost three years now she had been at home, and it had come to this. She had got no further than this in fulfilling her dream of daughterhood by the fish-ponds of Alambrosa. In practice she could not be the daughter of these dreams. Still less could she be the daughter her mother so passionately wanted. Why was it? Many times she had asked herself that question, and now she stumbled against it again. She loved her mother, her mother loved her. The dream at Vallombrosa had at least had that much of truth. And all the time in Florence she had known herself spiritually involved with her mother, in some inexplicable way. Then why, when they were under the same roof, was there this unending conflict between them? Whose fault was it? Chafed and puzzled as she was by this questioning, Joanna was well accustomed to it, and had her own way of escape, which she presently took. Just as before her marriage she had constantly taken refuge in a world of dreams, so now, shaken awake by the vivid physical experience with Mario, she fled outwards to embrace the newly discovered actual. Well, she knew her way out. Had she not trodden it these three years a thousand times? So the unfallen tears soon dried in her eyes, and before the last cup was put away she was once more entirely absorbed in thoughts of the lunette she had to finish for Mr. Nilsson's class next day. Mr. Nilsson, her favorite master, what would he say about it? Thank heaven she had her work. With the natural end of her mourning for Mario, Joanna had become in a perfectly fresh way conscious of the outside world. She had seemed to re-enter life like one new-born, and now for the first time was experiencing the vigor of her youth. A shadow and a burden were lifted, a film taken from her eyes. She was able now to interpret the sense of escape that had come to her in the train as she left Florence, and she understood more fully why her heart had almost broken with thankfulness by the lakeside as the Rondinelli took their flight from her hand. She was not merely a woman reprieved, but a woman awakened. Even now she could not at all times identify herself with this new, intoxicating, workaday world, which for so long she had disdained in favor of dreams. The other people who were in it, and part of it, must see through her, she often fancied, guessing her no true-born inhabitant. But she did not want to be an alien. She had given herself readily to its refreshingly tangible complexities, and quickly she made a place for herself in it, a place where her mother could not follow her. Acquaintances she now had in flocks. People, of course, knew her story and rejoiced in it. Her looks were in keeping with romance. She was everywhere received with a mixture of sympathy and envy which was delicately flattering. She talked with shy eagerness listened reverently, admired, and with encouragement criticized. For her the most ordinary social event in this unknown world was highly colored. She might well have been eighteen instead of twenty-four. And alongside of this enlargement, without making any special effort, she had surprised herself by acquiring the habit of work. She was making real progress, and in a quiet way had become a figure at the School of Art. The masters were on friendly terms with her, the students discussed her clothes and her features, 
It was astonishing how much livelier her pencil had become, and she had a passionate appreciation of drapery. Her ambition was to earn her own living, some day to go to London. But by Julie every step of this social and artistic advance was subtly opposed. It was a strange, unremitting conflict. The more the mother perceived the daughter's gifts, the more desperately she deplored any little worldly success the girl might have. There was unscrupulous warfare between them. And with this result. That Joanna was spurred on her way far more steadily by the discouragement at home than by all the easily elicited praise outside. Both were useful, but even when it irked her most, the true stimulant lay in the handicap her mother was to her, and obscurely she knew this. Poor Julie, on her side, had no such compensations. Besides, she lacked the saving hardness of youth. She, too, was sorrowfully puzzled by the turn things had taken. Life had been so very sweet to her for a little immediately after Joanna's homecoming. She had rejoiced in what she described to Eva Gedge as the softening influence of sorrow, and had welcomed the passing simplicity that grief brings. Bereaved Joanna had been very loving and so gentle that to the mother it seemed as if a real change of heart must have taken place. The two had been more nearly united than ever before. But these first days, or were they only hours, had passed all too quickly for Julie into a treasured memory. And now she saw her dear child, dearer now than ever, drifting farther from her and from her grace, becoming, as the years passed, more and more worldly and pleasure-loving. If Julie faltered at times in this view, letting her natural maternal pride have the upper hand, or excusing her daughter's youth, there was Eva Gedge, and Eva knew how to apply the spur. Such an experience as Joanna had been through, said Eva, must lead either to heart-whole dedication or to a more callous resistance. And to know in which direction Joanna was moving, had not one merely to look at the friend she chose for herself? This was an accusation to which Julie had no answer but a sigh. Eva's graceless part, indeed, was to foment whatever was mean and sterile, and to drag down all that was fine and productive, in a contest which, let alone, had little of baseness in it. Like Mabel, she was essentially a divider. Barren of life itself, her deepest passion was to balk and defeat the entering of others into life. Not that she was herself aware of her role. Not that others, seeing her warm show of interest in the face of Joanna's cold politeness, would easily have guessed it. She was always the first to smile, with Christian cordiality, when Julie tried to bring daughter and friend to a better understanding. And though it sorely irked her, she almost always refrained from putting into words her constant disparagement of Joanna's natural qualities. Often she wore martyred air, and truly enough there was martyrdom to her envious nature in Julie's mounting pride in the younger woman. As for Joanna, she had become angry with a kind of scornful jealousy. She knew that Eva's influence was hateful. She knew that her mother, in the deep, human part of herself, was glad that she, Joanna, could no more love Eva than Eva could help envying her. Yet she was helpless. And whenever she had been the subject of a prayerful conference between them, she writhed anew under the reinforcement of authority in her mother's voice, 
and under the malign gleam that darted from the prominent, black eyes behind Eva's glasses. So Joanna had steeled against them both. She knew not how often her mother, out of tender consideration for her, did violence to herself, keeping difficult silences, restraining sorrowful exclamations, suppressing unkind criticisms of her daughter's new friends. Nor did she know the depth of her mother's loneliness, which, by a moment of lavish affection, either she or Linnet could better have assuaged than Miss Gedge by many hours of spiritual conversation. 2. As far as Julie and Miss Gedge were concerned, Joanna had three friends, Mrs. Lovett, Carl Nilsson, and Feemy Pringle, but each of these represented a growing host of undesirable acquaintances. Mildred Lovett, upon Joanna's return to Glasgow, had hastened to pay a call of mingled condolence and curiosity. It was known what part she had played in Miss Bannerman's romantic marriage and the moment she had reconnoitred at Colessy Street she was generously determined to welcome Joanna, but Joanna alone, to her special circle. That it was a special circle everyone admitted. Indeed, if Mildred did not speak of it as a salon, that was only because there were undoubtedly people in Glasgow who might not take such a word seriously. As a salon she certainly thought of it and even the scornful uninvited never denied that it included, in a fitful way, ten times the number of celebrities the lady could have achieved with thrice her income in London. Not only was she able to tap the university and the school of art, which between them should represent the intellect of any city, but her drawing-room in Panmure Crescent had become a known resort for such distinguished visitors as came from London to lecture, act, paint, or make music on the banks of the Clyde and Joanna was young enough to find it thrilling that she should meet famous people in the intimacy of a friend's drawing-room. What matter if she rarely saw them oftener than once, and then did it not get farther than a few remarks about the weather? But she learned quickly to keep from mentioning her notabilities at home, except privately to Linnet. One evening, at the tea-table, having overflowed in eager chatter about some well-known actor, her words had died under Julie's sad and steadfast gaze, and the lips of Eva Gedge who happened to be there had suddenly gone rigid. 3. Miss Gedge herself, however, was less unsparing in her criticism of Mrs. Lovett than was Joanna's second friend, Carl Nilsson. Four years earlier, when the middle-aged Swedish artist had come, preceded by a high reputation, to teach design at the Glasgow School, Miss Lovett had piped her sweetest to him. But from the first he had refused to dance. He was a misfit at her parties. Then, as the months passed, and it became clear that there was to be periodic trouble between the temperaments of Nilsson and the art director, he was tactfully excluded from the Panmure Crescent Salon seeing that the director, Mr. Valentine Plummer, was the salon's principal pilaster, this could not be wondered at. Had Nilsson not been too valuable to the school, he would have been excluded there also. As it was, Mr. Plummer could only make things uncomfortable for him, and Nilsson, knowing his position secure, retaliated in full measure. Nilsson, of course, had his own small circle of friends, but outside this, he was regarded generally as rather quarrelsome and difficult. 
to Joanna the little man had been consistently friendly, and she knew him of more valuable than Mrs. Lovett and all her kind. She had vaguely felt drawn to him, amused and attracted by his irritability, during the term before her marriage. And now, with his sharp criticisms which she sensitively welcomed, and his adroit praises which never made her ashamed, he had become to her a real helper. He gave her a kind of attention she had not had before from anyone. Also, it was at Nilsson's studio that she first met Femi Pringle. He was at work in the school on a fresco in which was a group of women, and asked Joanna to give him sittings for some details of his heads and hands. She had a useful head, he told her. And during these sittings, away from the interruption of the school, their friendship had prospered. Carl seemed to enjoy talking to her about quite as much as he enjoyed listening. She was not a bit in love with him, but it excited her to hear from his own lips how she appeared to this man for whom she had the deepest respect. She felt she could learn immensely from him, and he gratified her Scottish passion for self-improvement. On one particular afternoon he had entertained her as he worked by tracing the whole history of their acquaintance. "'I had my eye on you,' he said, winking at Joanna in the odd way that Mildred Lovett declared was so offensive. "'Yes, since the first week I came to your damned school of plumbers. She is nice, worth while, I said to myself, but all shut away, and so heavy and dull, what you call it, ladylike, and, oh, my Lord God, so sentimental. No aplomb, no dash, no poise, a formless lump of femaleness.' impossible. In that female amoeba there might possibly be a potential woman, again possibly not. Your Britain is full of the not-possibles. She had better get a lover quick march, I thought, or I give nothing for her chances. But I confess to you now, I did not see how you were to get the lover. I watched you. You kept them a hundred miles away, all these young Glasgow students who are ready to flirt with you. Then, hey, presto, I hear one day you are married. But I was pleased. And to a foreigner, too. Better and better. And off to Italy in such a hurry. That's the style. Yes, I rubbed my hands when I heard. She is saved, I said. And am I saved? asked Joanna with her broad, half-malicious smile. She might have been listening to a story about someone else, except that her heart felt like a fruit ripening on a south wall when the sun is strong. Not quite, perhaps, but one feels a beginning has been made. And now, Madame Joanna, if you would turn the head just a little—nah, too much, I said a little to the left—so is good. For one moment, till the kettle shall boil for our tea. She sat quite still for him keeping her head in the position he wanted and sunning herself in his talk. There was something so genuine in the man that his interest was very sweet. It was good that he should think her worth while. But Joanna's too self-satisfied reverie was interrupted by the noise of quick steps in the passage which led from the street to the studio. Both quick they were and heavy-sounding, like the steps of a child and next moment the flap of the letter-box was vigorously rattled, and a high, gladsome voice called, Cooee! through the slit. Nilsson threw aside his pencil, and a smile of extraordinary pleasure spread over his ruddy face. 
He was a short man, beginning to get stout, and though the hair on his head was all gone gray, his beard and mustache still held the color of bright rust. To Joanna, at this moment, he looked suddenly boyish. "'Now you shall meet my Femi!' he exclaimed with delight. "'She is the Pearl of Glasgow. How glad I am that you should meet her!' As he skipped across to the door, Joanna's heart contracted in a spasm of mortification. What a fool she had been to imagine Nilsson especially interested in herself! But with her first glance at the newcomer, a glance of keenest curiosity, some of her hastily discarded complacence was reinstalled. How could Nilsson be so delighted with this silly, common, little overdressed person who came marching blithely into the room? Why, she spoke with a villainous south-side accent, and had a runaway chin. "'Miss Euphemia Pringle, Signora Rasponi,' sang out Nilsson. And as he took the kettle off the gas-ring for tea, he kept a sidelong eye on the meeting between the two young women. When she had put her own firm, square little hand into Joanna's, Femi tilted back her face and looked with eyes that brimmed with laughter from Joanna to her host. "'You never told me you're having a lady friend to tea,' she rallied him. "'It's a real shock to find I'm not the one and only.' Though Joanna at this thought her more than ever common, she could not help watching Nilsson's visitor with that fascinated envy we feel when suddenly confronted with an embodiment of all the qualities in which we ourselves are lacking. Femi laid down a silk-fringed handbag decorated with beads, settled herself in a chair that was rather too high for her short legs, and started fanning her bright cheeks with a sheet of drawing-paper. Her smallest movement was full of festivity. "'Yon's an awful like stare of yours for a poor thing like me with a weak heart.' She spoke to Nilsson, but her smile was for Joanna. She sought the other girl's sympathy, not for her inane remark, but for all the gaiety there was in life so that Joanna had to smile back in admission. And although during tea Feeney said nothing more ambitious than this, yet Joanna quite lost the first impression of silliness. Feeney's eyes were too clear of self-absorption for silliness, and her silences were too intent. When anyone else spoke she was poised in almost embarrassing attention. Nilsson asked her if she would sing for them. "'I want you to try my new Steinway,' he said and he told how he had bought the piano at an auction sale in Renfield Street for five pounds. "'Is that a fact?' exclaimed Femi, with a colloquial exaggeration that showed how impressed she was. "'Yon was a fair bargain!' She had risen quite readily on being asked to sing, and she took off her hat as she spoke, stabbing the pins into it carelessly and throwing it on a chair before she crossed to the piano. It stood in the far corner of the studio an out-of-date table grand, really cumbersome, with its thick body and carved, straddling legs. And seated before it, Femi looked very little and dainty. Now that her over-trimmed hat was off, she showed a delicate head with hair parted smoothly and coiled behind. The light which came through a yellow blind beyond the piano seemed to take pleasure in enveloping her. She struck some chords, gently giving the worn instrument its chance, her listening face turning the while sideways towards the window. It was a beautiful movement of her long neck and sloping shoulders, a quite unconscious disengaging of herself from the others, 
so that she became aloof in her circle of yellow light, she and the huge old black piano. Then her breast rose, her throat swelled like a bird's, and there came quite softly, like a fine-drawn thread of gold, the first high, sweet note of her song. Nilsson lay back sighing in his chair, his eyes closed, and a look of utter contentment on his face. But Joanna leaned forward, her elbows on her knees, her eyes on the singer, thirsty for each lovely careful note. This girl, whom half an hour earlier had summed up as common and silly, was an artist no less. What a mistake she had made! Now she was eager to accept her humiliation. And above all, if only it might be, she longed to make Euphemia Pringle her friend. 4. When the girls left Nilsons together, they walked eastwards along Souchial Street, looking at the milliner's windows and talking mostly about what they saw there. But under all they said there was a happy excitement. "'We are going to be friends,' each kept thinking with delight. Now and again Joanna stole a look at Femi, and with every look she found new pleasure in the valiant little profile. And Femi was impressed and carried away by something in the other that she could not define to herself. A real wee madam was how she would describe Joanna to her sisters when she got home. But she had a disclosure to make before she could be sure of this new relationship, and as they turned the crowded corner into Renfield Street she came out with it. "'Shall I take you into the business?' she asked, watching the other's face keenly. "'Mama will likely be gone, but Annie and Florrie should still be there, and young Nora might be in meeting them.' Joanna said she would like to be taken, and wanted to know what kind of a business it was. "'You're never telling me you don't know Pringles!' But Femi's astonishment was forced, for she was on the defensive. "'It's Mama's shop, and two of our girls help in it.' There was no doubt in either of them that it was a disclosure, and as they looked steadily into each other's eyes, Joanna was casting about for the way to put things right between them. She felt herself somehow to blame for the troublesome shop. She knew it well, as everybody in Glasgow did. Pringles, the ladies' and children's outfitter. But never before had she had a friend with a shop in the family. She could see Mildred Lovett smile. "'Of course I know it,' she said, after a scarcely perceptible pause. "'I'm wearing a chemise now that I got there. It's the best I ever had.' "'That's the worst of Mama's things.' rejoined Femi. They wear everlastingly. I have one on, too, for a wonder." They both laughed a little tremulously now that their anxiety was gone. It was all right. Things were going to be all right between them. 5. Thus it was that Joanna came for the first time upon the reservoir of human life which gives to Glasgow its essential character and she came upon its very sources at Sanssouci, the villa on the south side of the river, where the Pringle family vociferously lived. It is curious how completely a household like the Bannermans may lead an alien existence in a town. Julie, only coming to live in Glasgow on her marriage, had long kept the feelings of an exile, and something of this had been communicated to her children. On Sholto's side, the family associations had been with the citizens of the passing generation, and his public ties had died with him. 
Even in his lifetime, Edinburgh had come to be regarded as the true Bannerman headquarters. It followed that the children had chosen their few playmates most naturally from among the exotics, and this was especially true of Joanna, with the hysterical aloofness of her youth. She had grown up wonderfully ignorant of her native place. Her West End schoolfellows, with their clipped syllables and narrowed vowel sounds, fondly imitative of an English accent, had revealed but a fragment of its integral life, and that, as it were, under protest. But in the world of Sans Souci, the mocking, hard-working, mercurial people were indigenous. Their streams of being flowed bright and uncontaminated from Glasgow's central pulse, and they knew it. They were more at home in Paris than in Edinburgh. Buchanan Street existed for them alone. At first, thrown among so many young and pleasure-loving women, Joanna felt bewildered. But soon she was making good all the enjoyment denied to her shadowed and painful teens. At Sans Souci there was a constant noise of talk and laughter. Married sons and daughters ran continually in and out. The unmarried ones lived in an atmosphere of sweethearting which pervaded the rooms and the garden. The family was sharply divided into blondes and brunettes, accounted for by the Italian strain. For old Mr. Pringle, who wore a sombrero in the garden and had flashing eyes, lost no time in making it clear to Joanna that his distant forebears had been called not Pringle but Pellegrini. From the crowd of them, our Flory, our Tom's wife, our Polly's wee girl, our Nora's latest, there principally emerged for Joanna Annie, grave and handsome with a pile of honey-colored hair, Nora, black-haired, skinny, and almost uncannily vivacious, and pale, strange-eyed Jimmy, who is generally understood to be Feemy's young man. All the doors of all the rooms were left open, and long conversations were carried on by people in different rooms on different floors. The single servant, which Mama considered sufficient for the needs of any family, never stayed long. But her going inconvenienced nobody. Even when she had not yet gone, there would always be more people in the kitchen than in the drawing-room. Particularly when Mama was in the house, was it an understood thing that no one should sit down for more than a minute at a time. To be settled in an armchair reading was violently contrary to Mama's fixed notions of young womanhood. It was not thus that she had built the business up. And for Mama, the business was life, was romance. She had built it up herself out of nothing, her husband finally taking his humble place in it as a bookkeeper, for Mrs. Pringle could not add a column of figures, and her nine children and these children's friends were shadowy to her, except in so far as they touched the well-being of the business. When Joanna was introduced, Mrs. Pringle had taken her hand in a strong clasp, very like Feemy's own but there had been no scrutiny whatever in the innocent eyes that were set far apart in the broad, babyish face, and Joanna had felt sure she would not be recognized on a second meeting. Mere human beings were excluded from the absorbing pattern of this woman's existence. Assuredly, it would have been difficult to find anything in greater contrast to the quiet, sad-colored life at Colessy Street, with its intense spiritual currents, than this household of Sans Souci. End of section 13